Thank you for listening to this sermon from Goodwill Church, located in New York's Hudson Valley. Goodwill Church is on a mission to be a hub of revival in the Northeast and beyond. For more information about our church, please visit goodwillchurch.org. Now, here's the sermon. So this morning, we're going to be continuing in the book of Hebrews, looking at chapter 13, but just the, the first six verses, actually. So let me read them to you. Hear the word of the Lord, Hebrews 13. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Heavenly Father, we thank you as we do each week for your word to us. We pray you would bless our time in it. You would help us to sit under it and be changed by it. We would be more and more like your son. Simply Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Looking out at the road rushing under my wheels, looking back at the years gone by like so many summer fields, it was 65, and I was 17, and running up 101. I don't know where I'm running now. I'm just running on. Running on. Running on empty. Running on. Running blind. Running on. Running into the sun. I'm running behind. Now, if you recognize those lyrics, then I have managed to date you as well as myself, by the way. That is the first verse and chorus of Jackson Brown's Running on Empty from way back in 1977. Now, one of the things that we did last week was we, we considered the need to run the race and to run it with endurance and run it with discipline and run it with vision, something that we're going to see uh, at the very end of Hebrews, Lord willing, next week, the vision toward the lasting city and as the, the writer of Hebrews comes to this portion, this, this ending of the letter, as he does, he's doing so by encouraging us to keep on running. But of course, not on empty, like Jackson Brown, and certainly not blind. We said last week that we walk and therefore in some manner run by faith and not by sight, but that doesn't mean that, that we are to do so without vision, Quite the opposite, in fact. 
Last week, one of the things that we did was we began to cast some vision about our church plant. And with it, we talked about some of the difficulties and the struggles that do and clearly have accompanied that move. For some of you, it was troubling and difficult and weighty. But as I spoke to some of you, one-on-one especially, I was actually encouraged that none of you would ever consider stopping running, which is good. Rather, you're simply choosing to run differently. Maybe with Goodwill Maine rather than Goodwill Plant. And by the way, we're still running with them for a season. I know it may seem confusing, but eventually we will be separated. But in much the same way as an adult child is encouraged to step out on their own, in other words, a good thing, a rather normative thing in the nature and institution that is the church. And what we're looking at in these verses here in Hebrews 13 are in essence the author's final encouragements to run the race well, to finish the race well, to keep the faith, to borrow Paul's language. Hebrews chapter 13 can be broken up this way. We want to keep on running by loving well, that's what we'll look at today, and then by remembering and obeying your leaders, which means you're all going to show up next week, right? And then finally, there's some benediction and final greetings at the end of the, path, at the, end of the, of the book. So what we're going to do is look at loving well this week. This is how the chapter opens up. Let brotherly love continue. I didn't mean to do this, but we're going to put them all up here. Last week, one of the things we did was we, we, we recognized and were taught, as I mentioned a moment ago, that our struggles, our difficulties, our challenges that we would encounter and do encounter must simply be understood as the discipline of our Heavenly Father. And with that understanding of, of what is happening, then we're then charged to apply that truth rather directly by lifting up drooping hands and, and strengthening weak knees, a reference to Isaiah 35, by straightening our paths, a reference to Proverbs 4 and many, many other passages. We're charged to strive for peace and holiness, themes that we see throughout Scripture. We're warned to guard against bitterness, to maintain sexual integrity, and to offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe because God is a consuming fire. Another reference to Deuteronomy 4. And what we get now in these short verses, really, uh, the last part of Hebrews, which we'll see it next week, Lord willing, is, is really kind of a sermon wrapped up in a letter. What we get are some additional key charges that help us to walk out what it means to be the children of God, to run the race well. And we need to remember something key here, that that the struggles and the difficulties that we encounter, that are inevitable to counter, are seen as disciplined by our Heavenly Father if and only if we are, in fact, children of God. And since we are, in fact, children of God, then we are to keep running by loving well. And how do we do that? By letting brotherly love continue. What the text actually says is simply this. Let love continue. 
The word that's there in the Greek is phileo, which you probably are familiar with. That's where we get the Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. And we sometimes associate that word for love with brotherly love. But it brings up an interesting point, a conversation, a debate that happens a lot, namely this, that love has a number of different names in the Greek language. Eight, uh, by some studies, as many as eight different words for love. And normally what we do is we, we try and distinguish between these different words. For example, phileo means brotherly love, and agape means the love of God. But there's other studies that show us that these words are often used interchangeably. For example, when Jesus speaks about how the hypocrites love to stand in the streets and pray in public, he uses the word phileo. And when Jesus speaks about the Pharisees and their love for the best seat in the synagogue, he uses the word agape. That's interesting. What's my point? It's simply this, that we need to be very careful when we look at love and restrict our exploration of its meaning just to the particular word use. Now, sometimes specific words uh, must be given careful attention. Word studies have their place and they're very important. But there's ample evidence, as I've just demonstrated, that when it comes to this word, this word love, restricting ourselves to the just the particular use of the word can actually hamper our explorations of its intended meaning rather than help it. Well, great, you might say. That's nice. How does that actually help us here? And it helps us in this way by encouraging us to implement this charge to love by considering the broader biblical meaning of love. How are we to understand love as Christians? Well, one way we consider that is to, is to observe that we know that, that we can only love because God first loved us. In fact, John tells us that. But he also tells us that God is love. I'm sure you're familiar with that. Now, there's an interesting thing about that phrase, God is love, and it goes like this. If God is love, some people contend that it us must also be true in reverse. God is love, therefore love is God. Nope. That doesn't work. It's not a logic statement. God is love is not that. Love is an attribute of God, but God is a being. He has personhood. He is love, but love does not have personhood. Love is merely an attribute, a trait of God. God is holy, but holiness is not God. Holiness is an attribute of the person of God. So too is love. But it must be said, that love is so profoundly bound up in the person of God that John, John can say what he says, namely that God is love. D.A. Carson actually gives us five different aspects of God's love described in Scripture. The first one is intertrinitarian love. That's a mouthful, but we'll unpack that a little bit. The second one is providential love. Then there is saving or salvific love. Then there's electing love. Then there's covenantal love. And without getting too deep into those categories, what we can learn from these observations is that the love of God has numerous aspects and we need to avoid absolutizing one over the other. Carson puts it this way. He says, Christian love can be understood and best practiced only when it is seen to be a reflection of God's love in its varied 
dimensions. You need to see the sort of the broader picture of God's love and all of its different applications. Sometimes we get that a little bit in our own lives, right? We, we, we have tough love. We've heard of that, right? Somebody doesn't want to do that that way, so they, they're overly generous. And then you can't, but you can't say that they're not generous if they're, if they're exercising tough love. And you can't say that they're not tough if they're only exercising generousness, right? The heart of the parent, per se, has both. We want to be thinking broadly about the dynamics and the application of the love of God when we consider the use of it in Scripture. So let's, uh, let me just say a few words about that just to help us get into these verses here. And firstly, and probably the most complex, is this first category of intertrinitarian love. Scripture gives us some insight into this. It does. The intertrinitarian love of God, the love of God within the three persons of the Trinity, the love that the persons of the Trinity have for one another, the love that stands outside of creation, utterly apart from time and space. But why do we have it? Why do we have this insight into a love that's utterly foreign to us, and how does it actually help us? So firstly, volumes have been written, and volumes more could be written on the subject of inter-Trinitarian love. We could talk about that if you'd like. No? Okay. Let me give you one practical thing that I think will be helpful for us to consider here. Why do we have that? Why do we have this insight? Well, for one thing, it models what sinless love actually looks like. It models sinless love. Now, you and I are the recipients of that sinless love, but we don't actually know what it looks like because we cannot yet reciprocate that love. We love God. We love God with everything in us, but it's still a sinful love because we're not sanctified yet, not fully. The love of God between the Father and the Son, for example, is something that is absolute in its nature. It's without condition. And it's free from sinful ambition, free from corruption. Because of that, it towers over any frail or temporal or sinful expression of love that you and I can offer. We love because God first loved us. We love because he first sovereignly and divinely and perfectly and absolutely and eternally loved us. We love because his love for us is not something that's subject to change. It's not impacted by circumstances. It's not motivated by anything sinful. Rather, it is motivated solely by his absolute perfections. God's love for us is good even when by our tainted standards it doesn't seem so. It's good, good in the purest sense of the word. And it must be stated that only that love, only a triune love, only an inter-Trinitarian love can save us. Only that love can save us. Only a love that emanates from the divine being of God, only a love that is free from any imperfections, free from any brokenness, only a love that is set upon us entirely because of God's sovereign, eternal will can save us. It is that perfect love that emanates from our perfect God that saves us from our many imperfections. 
In fact, it can rightly be said that every other form of love that exists emanates from this love. Inter-Trinitarian love is eternal. It is categorically distinct and different from the love of God for you and I. Now, maybe that's a bit hard to hear, but we're made by God. We're creatures, and he's the creator. Inter-Trinitarian love is not something that was set upon something else or someone else. It is eternally expressed within the Trinity itself. If I could put it differently, inter-Trinitarian love is the eternal outflow and reception of love between the three persons of the Trinity. It is love that both comes from and goes out to the three persons of the one true un changing God. And that's key for us to get because God is unchanging. His love is not, as I said, subject to change. And that should give us great confidence to trust in his word, the word that declares the love of God from Genesis to Revelation. That love is, is, as I noted, different from the inter-Trinitarian love. That love is the love of God within the being of God. And the love of God for us is the love that flows out of that God. How? Well, most directly in the person and work of Jesus Christ. In his incarnation, sinless life, and atoning death, and resurrection, and the outpouring gift of the Holy Spirit. If we were to consider this from just one lens, the lens of atonement, let me say this, we can rightly say that the atoning work of God, culminating with the Son of God on the cross, is but one byproduct of the inter-Trinitarian love. It's not to say that God doesn't love us. Of course that's not true, and we're going to see that plainly here. God does love us, but we must first distinguish the internal love between the persons of the Godhead from the external love expressed to the whole of his created order, most particularly us. And so we can say that the Son's love for the Father as well as his love for us results in his perfect obedience, his active obedience in complete fulfillment of the entirety of the law, and his passive obedience in taking our place substitutionarily as the sacrificial lamb. What about providential love? We'll be shorter with that one. God provides all our needs, both materially and spiritually. And we can also think about God's common grace here fitting under this heading. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And he does this to all image bearers on earth despite the fact that many of them are in full rebellion against him. God's providential love. His saving love, or his salvific love, is just a way of saying salvation or saving love, emanates from the Father's heart. It emanates from his inter-Trinitarian love. And we read it in places like Ezekiel 18, for example. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone. Or from the Gospel of John, where God says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. This gift, by the way, John tells us in 1 John 2, is sufficient for the sins of the whole world. And what of God's electing love? This is spoken of by the, the apostles. Jesus speaks of it. Um, Paul speaks of it in many places, but probably the most striking place is when he talks about it and applies it to his own life. When he writes in Galatians 1, for example, when he had set me apart from before I was born and called me by his grace... You see, God's electing love removes all pride from the equation. It's nothing we earn or choose. 
It is pure gift. It is the truth that our sinfulness, and if it's true that our sinfulness is as comprehensive as we believe Scripture to say it is, then electing love is perhaps the greatest act of God's love toward us, his creatures. Grab a hold of that. It's not this arbitrary choosing. It is a, you're so broken and sinful, I need to intervene and quicken your heart and open your mind to see the truth of my gospel and my love for you. It is a great external act of the intertrinitarian love upon the broken creatures made in God's image. And how does that electing love find expression? Well, through God's covenantal love. The very nature of covenant rests in the idea of relationship. God establishes and develops his relationships with his sovereignly elected people through the bond of covenant, a sacred bond that brings his people, the body of Christ, the church, into corporate solidarity with him as well as with one another. And so we are charged to let brotherly love continue We do so simply and profoundly to be a conduit of God's love, his multifaceted love that he lavished upon us and desires to lavish on others. We are to love others so that they too can experience the transformative love of God in Christ for them. We are to love others with a love that transcends social norms and political convictions. We're to love like Jesus loved. That is, we're to love in ways that often shocked and offended the religious elite of the world. As we prepare our church plan, I want to charge you to begin to think about love like that. Just how remarkable, I ask you, is the love of God in Christ to you? How much time do you spend thinking or meditating upon that love? How often are you overwhelmed by that love? When was the last time you were surprised by that love? If it's been a while, if it's not that often, then let me tell you, you will not likely love others all that well. You're not going to be able to do it that well. You can't give what you don't have. We want to establish a culture here that's built from the ground up upon something that Jesus did. Simply Jesus, as we just sang. Jesus touched the untouchable. He embraced the unembraceable. He loved the unlovable. When you look at the context of New Pulse, think about how Jesus would love others here. Think about how he would love you. Let me put it to you this way. Does your view of church tend to gravitate more towards the Pharisee camp or more towards the tax collector and prostitute camp? 
Something to think about. Because while Jesus never endorsed the practices or behaviors of the tax collectors and prostitutes, he also never ostracized them. Never. He was close to them. He ate with them. He fellowshiped with them. He loved them well. And if we want to accomplish what we have yet to accomplish here in New Pulse, then we need to extend our reach and redefine our comfort zones. I want our church culture to be built on letting love continue. Let's look at some of the other charges that we have here in our verses and see if that can also help us to run the race well, to build that culture here. We read, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. And the writer makes this rather interesting comment with it, and it's likely a reference to Genesis 18 where Abraham entertains these three men, presumably strangers, who told him about the promised child, Isaac, that was to come. He writes, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares, I've always found that statement a bit striking. Because when Abraham entertained the three strangers, he seemed to be pretty aware that they were not merely three strangers. They're not three dudes that just showed up. They were, in some manner, a manifestation of God to him. In other words, he knew. And yet the charge here is to be hospitable to strangers. And the assumption is that you may well be extending hospitality to angels, to God himself. Remember our call to worship from Matthew 25, a judgment text, by the way. Let me just read it to you again. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will, he will sit on his glorious throne. And before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he'll place the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Why? For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you and, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Now what comes after these verses in Matthew is Jesus, the king, saying to those on his left, those who did not do unto the least of these, those who did, did in fact, neglect to show hospitality, the strangers, and it is condemnation. It's judgment. I want to jar our thinking a little bit. I want to get us to rethink about how we think about church and what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. You think that the person that has somehow failed to live up to the American dream doesn't somehow deserve our compassion, of course you would say no to that. Of course they do. 
What about the person whose lifestyle clashes with our social or political or cultural views? Do they not deserve our compassion? Do they not deserve our hospitality? Of course they do. Now, hospitality, interestingly enough, is something that we treat in our church as a ministry. So let me just pause here and say that when you go downstairs today, you're going to pass by a table that has all kinds of clipboards on it with blanks that we need your names in and your contact information so that you can help us to serve in these various places, one of them being our hospitality ministry. We need your help. Being in the church means serving in the church. That's what it is to be in the church. And so hospitality is a ministry in the church, and rightly so as a category. But hospitality must be more than merely a ministry category. Hospitality is not regulated only to those on the hospitality team. We're all called to be hospitable, and not only one to another, but also to strangers. Have you ever noticed that the word hospitality has the word hospital in it? And a hospital is most certainly a place that provides life-giving care, by the way, almost exclusively to strangers. Now, oftentimes they charge for that care, and we won't do that. But it's an interesting use of the word. What is the culture of our church plant? It is the culture, as Julie keeps saying to me, of people who are more than mere churchgoers, but rather kingdom seekers. I like that. I hope you do too. We are a people that seek the kingdom. That is run towards the kingdom. And we run with mission and with vision. And we run as those who have tasted and experienced Jesus. Simply Jesus. But as we run, we want our mission to be to share that. Share Jesus with others. We want others to experience Jesus. Yes? If we want to create a culture here, that's what it has to be. We don't want church language. We don't want things that are done. We want the gospel. We don't care how we say it. Because at the end of the day, what the people in New Pulse and everywhere else need is Jesus. They don't just need head knowledge of Jesus. They need to know and experience Jesus, which means you need to experience Jesus before they can experience Jesus. How do we do it? We do it by letting the multifaceted love of God emanate out of us unto others. Unto the least of these, we would say. By letting that love continue. And we do that by being hospitable to strangers. And that hospitality centers on how well we can show them Jesus. Because if it's anything less than that, then why are we even here? Let me put it to you this way. Be hospitable to strangers cannot be said any better than to say, show strangers Jesus. Amen. 
show strangers Jesus. That's the vision. What we read next is a charge to visit prisoners, right? Actually, the first part of that is to remember them, which is interesting enough. Remember them and do so as if you were in prison with them. And I'm challenged by this because I love that it directly forces us to rethink mission. Because remembering prisoners and visiting them in prison, that's something that takes time and even resources. But you know what it won't do? It won't grow your church. Because they're not going to come. Because they can't. But it is really good kingdom work. It's right kingdom work. And so visit those who are in prison. Remember them. In fact, it's exactly what the writer tells us. He says, to remember prisoners and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Well, what body is that? Of course, it's the body of Christ, the church. Those whose citizenship is in heaven. It reminds me of Paul when he was persecuted and mistreating the followers of Jesus. When he was persecuting them, Jesus said to them, why are you persecuting me? This, of course, is after Jesus has ascended to heaven. Because persecuting others is persecuting Christ. And persecuting Christ is persecution against us as members of Christ. Now, as I'm going, going through this text, one of the things that I notice is there's, there's a bit of a pattern here. We have strangers and we have prisoners and those who've been mistreated, and they correlate to the charge to be hospitable and to remember as if you too were the ones being ostracized. You too were the ones being imprisoned or mistreated. You see, if we're to be impactful for the kingdom of God here in New Pulse, then we need to remember that we too were once imprisoned. We too were once enslaved. We too were in bondage to sin and have been in fact set free. Now, admittedly, if we're honest, that's a bit churchy, isn't it? If you've been in church a long time, that's the kind of language that you're used to hearing. And I suspect that people that are against church or suspect of church will smell that kind of language a mile away. So how can we let God's love continue? We do it not simply by passing along a hopeful message, by exhibiting that message. We do it by being living sacrifices, examples of God's transformative work in us. And that can only happen when we are moved by God's love for us. It can only flow out of us if it first is filling us. The writer of this letter is simply challenging us to implement ways to run well by loving others with a love that changed and is changing us. And so let us continue to be hospitable. That is, showing people Jesus by remembering those in prison and those who are, are being mistreated as if you as well were being mistreated because we are one with them. And not just one in a generic way shared with all humanity, but specifically one with them in our faith in Christ that we hope they too will one day come to share and join our fellowship. Not necessarily our church, but our fellowship, the broader church. 
But as the writer continues this list of ways to let love continue, he turns next to marriage. Why does he do that? It's interesting that marriage somehow gets here. Well, we can certainly say this, that marriage typifies God's love. God's love for us, his bride. But if we're honest, even the best marriages will have spouses that admit that at times it can be hard to let the love of God continue to each other. If we struggle to do that within marriage, we have little hope of offering that, even a fraction of that, to strangers. And I want to note something here that I think is very important. The writer here of, of, this, of this letter is not simply narrowing the field and addressing people who are married. That's not what's happening here. He's not simply turning his attention to those who are married. He's charging everyone to honor marriage. It doesn't matter whether you're married or single or divorced. We're still charged to honor it. Why? Because we must never forget that marriage is not an end in and of itself, but points us to the love of God in Christ, our bridegroom, for us, his bride. Marriage is designed to demonstrate the superlative, self-sacrificing love of God in Christ for his bride. So all of us must honor marriage as God has designed it because of its God-glorifying intent to draw our attention to the love of God for us, a love that gives life through his one and only son to present us as the spotless bride. And that means that we must show ways find ways to show the multifaceted love of God in how we honor marriage that neither endorses nor ostracizes other alternative choices. Because we cannot faithfully let God's love continue if we fail to honor marriage as God has designed it. Yet on the other hand, we also fail to let love continue if we ostracize others because of their choice who do not yet trust in Christ. Make no mistake, that must be central in how we develop our church culture here in New Paltz. One last thing. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Let me simply say two quick things about these verses. First, that the word that's translated as love here is actually not one of those eight variations of love in the Greek language. Instead, it's the word that's normally translated as coveting, which I think is a helpful way to think about how we view money. Sometimes the Bible uses a word that's a Greek word for love, but often it's something more like what we would covet. We'd have greed over it. So however you describe it, what we're getting at here is that there's no loopholes here. As Jesus put it elsewhere, you cannot serve God and money. Or he describes it as a deceitfulness of wealth 
or as Peter describes it, uh, using this, this powerful language, that those who struggle with it are trained in greed. Whew. That's a striking way to think about money, isn't it? That you're trained in greed. That simply, we cannot let God's love continue in or through us if we love the things of this kingdom, and money is the ultimate metaphor for that. Because money can gain you access to everything in this kingdom, everything that the world has to offer. Now maybe some of you are thinking, but wait, money can't buy me love. (laughs) Nope, you're right. It can't. Because love is free. Particularly the unconditional love of God for us in His Son Jesus. Free to us, costing everything to Him. And I want you to look at what accompanies this warning and helps us to get a better sense of God's love for us. Because we're charged to be content with what we have. And which the writer does this by equating it not with financial means, but with your spiritual status. Can't love God and money, and your contentment in this world must not rest in wealth, but instead in the promise that God will never leave you or forsake you. While that is a great truth for our eternal status, it also speaks to our present context. We are not alone. God is with us. He is the one we are to set our eyes upon. He is the one we are to look to as we run this race. Which is why we're told that in light of God's promise to us, that is, in light of God's word to us, we too can say something, a word that is deeply relevant and practical for us. Because God is with us. And we know we have all we need. We have all the help we need. And while we run our race, while we live as sojourners here, we can take comfort that in this world, none of that can ever be taken away from us. What can man do to me? Well, what can man do to us? Well, the answer to that is many things. But they can never take that away. They can't touch your faith in Jesus. The assurance of salvation cannot be touched by this world. They can never separate us from the love of Jesus, as Paul says. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And in fact, mankind did their very worst to Jesus. They did their very worst to him. They took his life. They caused him to suffer and persecuted him, and they took his life. But in doing so, they fulfilled his very will for us, having him as our substitution, dying on our behalf that you and I could live forever and ever. Assurance of forgiveness. And that is the good news of the gospel that takes us to the table. As the elements are being passed out, Let me charge you to think a little bit, meditate a little bit on that love of God. Take a few moments right now to allow the love of God to overwhelm you, to surprise you. Take a moment in your very, very busy schedules to pause, rest, and meditate on the love of God that cost him everything that he freely offers to you not just to forgive you of his sin, of your sins, but to provide you with communion with him. To grant you access to him through his indwelling spirit. 
Take a moment to be surprised by the wonder and majesty of what God does for you, not just on the cross, but in the outpouring of His Spirit to conform you to His image. That you could be like Him and be with Him. Let that take you by surprise. And with that sense of the love of God, I invite you to the table. And if your children are with you, I encourage you to, to exercise discernment as to whether or not they can come to the table. This table is open to all, all who are believers in Jesus Christ, baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this table is for you. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you for this. We thank you for this, this visible word, as I often say. We have just heard your words spoken. And now we see it before us, demonstrated in your atoning work. We ask now that you would take these elements, this cup and this bread, and set them apart for a holy purpose. That they might become to our faith your body broken and your blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. Thank you again for listening to today's sermon. For more resources and information about Goodwill Church, visit goodwillchurch.org. God bless.